Welcome to the Transform Your Wealth and Health podcast, where experts in wealth, health, and fitness help transform your life. Here's your host, Andy Arder. Today's guest is a super landlord, best-selling author, and property sourcing expert. It's Arsh Alakhi. Arsh, how are we doing? Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm absolutely fine, Arsh. Not as good as you, obviously, because you've been super successful over the years, absolutely crushing everything you do. So I wanted you on the podcast to tell us a little bit about it. I know not all of the times have been good, and I wanted your full story. So give us a little bit of the background, Arsh. Okay, well, um, thanks for the <coughs> fabulous introduction, should I say, Andy. <laughs> it's not always as glamorous as people make out. Uh, I'm an Amazon bestseller of a book called Boom Bust and Back Again. Uh, as the title suggests, it's never always been an easy journey. I've seen some fantastic times. I've seen some real low times. And the good thing is that I'm actually back to tell the tale, which is the most important part. Yeah, people who can see good times go through some really tough times and then as a result never bounce back for it mm. so, uh, that kind of gives you a bit of an indication to the kind of resilience so uh, so who is Arsh Lahi so basically I'm based in Wolverhampton I've been Wolverhampton born and bred uh, the only time that I've ever really left Wolverhampton was when I went to university uh, mm. I in Cheltenham at the University of Gloucestershire so I did a degree in international business and international marketing management which is nothing property related and after I left university um, I kind of my you could say that I had a bit of a head start depending on how you look at it uh, well my parents were part-time I wouldn't call them property investors so to speak but depending on, again how you look at it yeah. part-time or landladies so my my dad had my dad's real main passion was he was uh, a precision engineer so we used to manufacture parts for earth movers forklifts and one of the main contracts that we had was with caterpillar oh yeah yeah uh, he was you know from a very young age he knew nothing other than to become an engineer originated from pakistan came over in the late 50s and slowly but surely built himself up to having a small, a very small manufacturing company uh, in the heart of the black, black country. Mm -hmm. So the profits that he would make from the engineering company, he would slowly but surely buy a couple of houses and would rent them out. And so with the combination of the profits from the engineering company and the cash flow from the small portfolio properties you could say that it gave me a bit of a platform to start with by no means a silver spoon in my mouth and the reason why i say that is that if i give you a background as to my childhood uh it was not a deprived childhood but it was a very hard working childhood whereas other children would get the opportunity to go and play football on the weekends or go and their uh, school clubs and go and play with their friends We're, a uh, typical weekend for me would be at 7 o'clock. I would be out of my bed by 6 o'clock from pretty much the age of 4, from the moment that we could pretty much walk. Wow. From 6 o'clock in the morning, I'd be out of bed. By 7 o'clock, I would be at the manufacturing or the engineering company. As, uh, on the weekends, I would help my father 
clean up the workshop so all the saw and all the steel and all the rubbish that they had accumulated during the week. And he was a one-man band, so he used to do pretty much everything from the lathes to the saws to the milling to the boring. So I kind of, I've got a very good education. I've got a very good, let's say, hands-on background. So every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, without fail, friends to the shine, regardless whether I was ill or not, I would be at that engineering company. Wow. So seven, between seven and one, Saturday and Sunday, I would be there. So give me a rough indication of what my childhood was like. So Monday to Friday, I'd go to school, finish school at roughly around four o'clock, I'd come home, and then I'd get sitting for literally half an hour, and then from five till seven, I would then have to go to mosque or Muslim school, depending on what you want to call it. Uh, I'd come home about half past seven, I'd have dinner, and then from there, I would then either have to help my father at his engineering company, mm-hmm. or I would then have to do my homework. So they were my options. There was really never a moment to sit down and either play as a normal child would. It was always very much, you're going to be doing something. Yeah. Do you think that's helped you today? Because obviously the work ethic back in the younger days. Exactly. Without a doubt, without a doubt, because the work ethic that I've got today is would it would outwork majority, if not all, of people. You know, I've, I've seen you know from a very early age. I've known nothing other than eighteen-hour days, wow. eight o'clock in the morning, going straight out. You know, or a minimum twelve-hour day, going straight out and doing four twelve-hour days without you know breaks or anything like that. So. Mm-hmm. I've done nothing other than hard work from day one. So I've seen my father work extremely hard. I've seen my mother work extremely hard. And they've built that ethic into me. So literally on weekends, on Saturday mornings, I would usually be um, at the engineering company. Saturday afternoons, I'd be at the properties. Saturday evenings, I'd be dragged around the shops with my mum and dad. So it was literally, you had no time. Yeah, We literally had no time to sit and relax. Mm. Yeah, sure. So, where do things go on from there? I, was... I did my GCSEs. So I went to secondary school. Did my GCSEs, and I was one of these. I was one of these kids that uh, I was an academic. Should I, should I say I'm the kind of person that, and I'm not a big reader. Now I know lots of people say you've got to read this, you've got to read that. I could probably read the same page three or four times, and it still would not have sunk in. Mm. So I I struggle to read books. Um, I also probably struggle to listen to audios as well. So I'm, I'm not, I don't know, uh, I've looked at different methods and techniques as to what really works for me. And my method of success is just to go out there and do it. All everything I've achieved, I've done as a result of literally stop talking about it, stop reading about it, just go off and do it and we'll yeah. learn way now i know that that's probably not the best advice for someone listening to this and completely brand new to it mm. but there's no better way of learning about it or there's no better way of knowing about the subject unless you're actually physically doing it i've spent yeah. months or years reading about stuff and still not doing it and i suppose that comes from my parents they said you know what if you want it, you've got to go out and earn it yeah sure so your your father I believe I've read in the past, did he have some issues with his companies and 
and you you decided to do it in a different way later on yeah so moving on so i did my gcse's then i went to university uh i went to university in uh, in cheltenham so i went to mm-hmm. university did uh, my international business management degree and then after i finished university um my dad sat me down and he goes okay so we're degree educated now what do you want to do and to be fair i had a bit of an air for music when I say air for music, I'd pretty much DJed all around Europe uh, and everywhere. So I, for a small part, I was sponsored by Red Bull and I DJ at certain locations and it was brilliant. And I said to him, if I explore that, and he goes, Sonny goes, let's face it, it's not going to, it's not going to ever make a full time living. Mm. Because he's helping me on my property journey. And I go, uh, I go, what do you want me to do? I said, you've got a small portfolio. He goes, well, I think we're, we're not doing as great or as good as we could be. Could you help me out and streamline it? And that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. I was looking at his portfolio and we found that the majority of the issues that we had were from working tenants because he'd structured it where they would pay in arrears as opposed to in advance. Right. And what were they were doing? They were using it as a stopgap. They would turn up for a month. They would, it wouldn't charge them one month's rent up front or a month's rent as a deposit or anything like that. Mm. They, would, they would live there for a month, pretty much rent free, and then they would disappear. Bloody so hell. Look at where the issues were, where the, where the pitfalls were. And straight away, I noticed that we, we had a good clientele. So when we're talking about small portfolio, we're talking roughly around 20 houses. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those were what we would consider now as HMOs, but we would call them back in, back in the day, bedsits. Yeah. So literally uh, a room that's got a kitchenette facility in and then that had to share a bathroom. So that was predominantly the style of stock that we had. And I knew nothing other than growing up in a HMO because my father, again, taught me that if you need to learn something, you've got to, you've got to live it. Yeah. And uh, from a very early age, I'm one of six children, so I grew up in quite a decent-sized household. Mm. But um, the first house that we, uh, my father bought, we only lived on the ground floor, and he rented out the rooms on the first floor in order for it, to, in order for it to be financially viable for us to live there. Yeah. So growing up, I only thought that people lived on the ground floor of the property, <laughs> and all the other rooms were rented out. Right. It's crazy, but that's, that's the reality, unfortunately. So yeah. I lived in a HMO from, as a baby. Wow. So, uh, so going pretty much to the point of about uh, when I was nine years old, I think, uh, is when we first moved into our house. And that's when I realised that we could actually utilise a full house. And that was uh, pretty much a family of eight living on the ground floor, uh, ground floor of a property. So moving on, looking at his portfolio... I looked at uh, I looked at the portfolio and we decided that now if we're taking professional tenants, we've got to pay in advance, and we had quite a few benefit tenants as well. And what I actually liked about that was the fact that it was a guaranteed income, and they would pay directly to the landlord as opposed to the tenants. And I loved that method. I thought, from a risk point of view, it was very straightforward, and it moved on. And it was a fantastic model. Yeah. My father said, but every tenant that moves out now, we're going to replace them with a benefit tenant or person that's on housing benefits. I bet he thought he was crazy, didn't they, originally? He did, he did think he's crazy because he goes, but he goes, some these are a bit more challenging. I said, well, no, if you structure it correctly, we can do it 
where it is pretty much very hands-off and we're going to get much better we're going to get much better uh rental income we're going to get a longer standing tenancy oh it's going to be a better covenant mm-hmm. so he said okay well let's run it let's run with it a couple of houses and let's see how we get on so slowly but surely as a uh, as a professional tenant or working tenant left we decided to put it with a, a benefit tenant and it worked extremely well and some of the tenants that we put in back then we've still got today so we started building up the voids went down the bad debt went down and as a result you know over a period of time i think we've got up to pretty much say a high 90 percent benefit tenants and, and that worked that works really well and then 2008 came along so between the year 2000 and 2008 that was working extremely well it was coming in every four weeks from the council without fail we'd get scheduled to see who had been paid how much had been paid and the period that had been paid for and it was literally a case of, other than any minor maintenance issues, there wasn't a lot to manage. So as a result, that took me on to, after I streamlined that, I became bored again. And I said, well, I can't do this. I can't just wait. I didn't want to sit on my hands for four weeks and wait for every four weeks on a Monday to see a schedule. I wanted mm-hmm. something to stimulate me. After all, I was still a young, still a young gentleman. Yeah. So I started to my dad and I said well why you know now that we've done that shall we start looking at other ways that we can start making some money with some property he goes well okay what we're going to do now and he goes well how about if I can buy and sell properties he goes okay I said but I don't want any help with it and I said when I say I don't want any help I don't want any financial help he goes well how are you going to buy a house all I need initially is probably uh, a bit of capital to start marketing. And when we say marketing, we're not talking massive amounts of money. We're talking a couple of hundred pounds. So, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to advertise in the back of the paper. So I was one of the first people in the West Midlands, or especially in Wolverhampton. There's a there's a, there's a new player's code called the Express Star. I did a credit card style advert where I advertised for seven nights a week, or sorry, six nights a week because it's been quite So there's uh, and we advertise, you know, do you want to sell your house? We can buy your house for cash, rent it out, uh, you know, pay your legal fees, do a deal within seven days, da, 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 as you usually do. Mm-hmm. And we were one of the first people to start doing that in the back of the paper. And we, we were getting a good level of responses. And the aim was very simple, to negotiate a discount and then get the option on it and put it into the auction and sell it or hopefully a lot more than what we've got the uh, what we've got the option on. So let's just use an example. Yeah. If the house was worth £100,000, we'd negotiate it at circa between seventy and £75,000. We'd put it in the auction for circa a guide of seventy five to £80,000, with the, with the reserve being circa around eighty grand. Mm-hmm. And then it would go to the room. The completion date would be set at pretty much the same kind of completion date as the auction sale. Right. So literally, we were doing deals with none of our own money. Yeah, it's clever, very clever. So in that respect, and we were doing we were doing fantastically well at that negotiating the discount. The perch, the seller knew what we were doing, so we would get them because obviously they would have to know that the property was going to be entered entered into an auction. They knew that they had to accommodate us with viewings. So literally, I was a middleman between 
the original seller and the auction house. The auction would then look after the buyer. I would load into the contract a load of fees to ensure that A, I wasn't going to lose out, B, all my legal costs were covered, C, that everything, everything, the contract. And we were finding lots of properties that were dilapidated, lots of properties that had mine shaft issues around the black country. We've got lots of mining areas, so lots of properties are blighted with mine shafts, which means that they're unmortgageable. Mm-hmm. These kind of style of properties were perfect for uh, perfect for auction stock. Yeah. And that we can get it cheap enough. So why do you think the people didn't auction them themselves? The, uh, the honest answer is they probably hadn't thought about it. And, uh, the fact is that we, we've managed to package it up extremely well. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, there's no risk to them. You know, from, from my point of view, the risk was £500 per property, which was the listing fee. But I would get that back on a successful sale anyway. If the property didn't sell, the second option would be that we'd then try and sell it out to our investor database, which we, ha- we didn't have a vast. Uh, database back then yeah it's grown now <laughs> it's grown massively now but as a result you know it's uh would shift i would say a good 90 percent of the properties yeah there were the other few that didn't sell in the auction and we couldn't sell to our investors they're the ones that we had to unfortunately go back and let down the vendor saying we've either got to renegotiate or we've got to say sorry we can't help on this scenario because the last thing that you want to do is take on something that's going to lose your money Especially, you know, being a very young, early 20-year-old lad, the last thing I want to do is buy something and get stuck with it at that stage. Yeah. So we were doing that. So we were trading with none of our own money. We're literally negotiating. We were putting it into auction. We were selling. These, the completion dates were all lined up. The solicitors, it was a, if you want to call it, you know, there's lots of ways of calling it. You can call it flipping. You can call it back-to-back sales. You can call it, you know, it depends on... You could call it sub-sale, depending on who you spoke to and what, what they thought the strategy was. We had solicitors all lined up already, so the, the seller would use a, sli- a solicitor that we allocated them. We would, I would use my solicitor, and then the auction house, obviously the buyer, they could use whoever they wanted. On the day, if they sold, if they bought the property, they would, uh, they would exchange with me, which means that I would then exchange with my buyer. So let's say that I negotiated, 70, if the house was worth 70, uh, sorry, the house was worth 100 and we negotiated 70, I'd put it in the auction for circa 75 to 80, hopefully uh, with the reserve being at 80. We sold it for 80 plus, let's say that we sold it for 85. The buyer would now pay me 10%, which was 8,500 pounds, mm-hmm. and pay the seller 7,000, which is 10% of the 70,000. And on completion, because the buyers bought it off me for 85, I would click my 85. I would then pay the seller the 70, and I would make 15 grand plus all the legal costs and all that kind of stuff all covered. So I would walk away from a deal pretty much all ready to go, or you know, without putting any anything into it. Yeah, that's that's a great technique. Do you think that's still viable nowadays, Ash? Can you still use that one? We're still doing it. Wow. <laughs> it's a slightly the only difficulty is is that with auctions they do take time yeah got a th- you know you've got a three-week marketing period then you've got a four-week completion period and there's a risk that it doesn't go it doesn't sell in the auction 
there's only so many properties that you can do because of the time scale. We, we developed that one stage further, so we started to build our own investor database. And I think to date, it's well in excess of 100,000 people on that database. That's brilliant, Ash. You've got to remember that this has been over a span. Uh, as we speak today, I'm 37 years old. When I started my property journey, I was 20. So 17 years, I've uh, been in the game, 17 years full time. And in that period, we've, I've met hundreds of thousands of property investors. Uh, and we've sold thousands of property deals. And I'm still going, and we're still there. So, you know, talk, uh, fast forward right up to 2017 or 2018. In 2017, we did the best part, for, well, we did 483 deals. That's incredible. 483 deals last year? In 2017. Wow. Ash, would you mind telling us how much that netted you? Let's say, without giving an exact number, it, over a couple of million quid. Wow, thank you. That's absolutely brilliant, Ash. So you're obviously a property professional and you've got all these techniques and I know you do a mentorship. So tell us a little bit about that as well. Before we go on to the mentorship, the one yeah. thing I would say, I'm not, I'm not one of these people that like to do a hard sell. And yeah. I don't, I don't know, one thing that I do is that I, I like to teach people my craft when I say my craft, I, I believe I'm very specific and not special in a sense, but I rather tell people what they can do and how they can do it. I'm not one of the, I used to be, I used to run workshops and I used to get people, you know, 70 or 80 people in a room at a time. Mm. Say, you can do this, you can do that. I've taken it a, a look. I've moved away from that slightly because I like to do a bit more one-on-one -on -one because I find that you get a lot better results. Yeah. I believe anyway that there's no such thing as all one model fits all anymore. Mm. I can speak to two completely different people with two completely different skill sets. And if I sent them to the same property, they would come out with two completely different methods for that property. Yeah. And I suppose... You know, one of the key things that I teach nowadays is the sourcing techniques. Mm -hmm. So it's the techniques that they utilize that they go to appraise properties. And the reason why I teach, as opposed to teach rent-to-rent -rent, as opposed to teach HMO, which I still do on a one-to-one -one basis, but if someone came to me and said, Ash, if I want to start today, what should I start with? I would always say to them, you should start to look at your sourcing techniques first because once you understand what you're looking at in a property, you can then take that property down whatever method you want. Yes. So let's say, if you look at a property, and it's, let's say it's a four-bed house, uh, to one person, it might be a four-bed single let. To another person, it might be a four-bed HMO. To another person, it might be a six-bed HMO. To another person, it might be an eight-bedroom service accommodation unit. To another person, it has development potential to be converted into flats. To one person, it's only worth bricks and mortar value. To another person, it's worth a commercial value. To another person, it has potential for development value. So how do you, how do you value that property and that style of property? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is there's no one answer. And if you understand the sorting techniques and if you understand the valuing techniques, 
that is where the benefit is because I believe that today the real value is how to add value to any kind of scenario, whether that be property or whether that be negotiating, etc. Mm, this is the interesting thing, Ash. So you teach these techniques to people, I take it, because obviously you've got the mentorship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I run a group called the Elite Property Tribe. So if you Google the Elite Property Tribe, which is or go to the website elitepropertytribe.co.uk, uh, this is where I teach people how to source properties, how to look at properties, how to look at property in a different way or in a different method. And as a result, you'll understand how I managed to get through 483 deals. Now, 483 deals, I, per, I didn't actually visit 483 properties it'd be impossible to do that you could say that i perfected the sourcing technique so that i don't physically have to view the property i look at it from an external point of view or if you want to call it remotely i have a look at floor plannings i have a look at the start and the layout of the property and then i'm able to look at what it can become from a point of view and how we can value it on that basis. Cosmetically, I don't care how the property looks. I'm interested in whether the property is structurally sound or uh, if there's any structural issues, but that can all come out in the wash through the process anyway. Yeah. So you can have, you can have surveys done, et cetera, et cetera. So just because a vendor says it's structurally sound, I never believe what a vendor says. <laughs> and literally there, to sell the property. Yeah. They're literally there to want to do a deal. And as a result, we move, it moves forward and everyone, uh, as a result, it, it moves forward and the owner has sold the property. The sourcer has successfully sourced another property or sold another property. And the buyer has successfully purchased another great deal. So there's lots, there's lots and lots of things. Well, I make it sound too easy. <laughs> to an effect, it is actually easy. But what it does require, it requires patience, especially if you're starting out. And it requires some grit and determination because not everyone that you're going to speak to is going to say yes to you straight away. Mm. And that includes me, you know, 18 years on, I'm still not getting 100% yeses, but with 483 deals under my belt last year, you can say that. Yeah, well, I'm quite happy, and I'm also a little bit unhappy with it because I feel like we should have got to 500. Yeah. The, you know, the aim was 500. 483 was a bloody good attempt. And so that this year, the aim is to get to 500, and it is, it is definitely doable. It's incredible, Ash. Well done to you. So along the way of building things up, I know you're a family man, and I also know you like to keep fit of recent. So what, what made you change on the fitness regime? That's an interesting one, Andy, because mm -hmm. I've, I've got a lovely wife who's given me two very beautiful young daughters. So yeah. my, my eldest daughter turned five this week. Uh, my youngest daughter is three. So... My wife said to me, after we had kids and, you know, once we got to a certain age, perhaps we should start doing some fitness stuff together, which is more so time for me and her to bond in the evening when the kids, as you can appreciate, when you've got young kids, they take over your life. 
Yeah. They do life, you know, and pretty much it is a it is pretty much a mini rat race. You wake up in the morning, you've got to get them ready. So we've got a bit of a schedule where I look after the kids in the morning, I wake them up, I do their breakfast, I get them washed, I get their brush their teeth, get them ready into their school clothes, and then my wife will drop them to school. And when they come back from school, uh, my wife will get them ready for bed. I'll put I'll do the bath time and bedtime stories. So we've got a bit of a routine. But then in the evening, I want to make sure that me and my wife, we, we still have some form of life. Mm. Uh, what she said uh, last year, she says to me, I suppose we should put ourselves up for a bit of a challenge. And she goes, shall we apply for the London Marathon? Yeah, and I said, fine. And so first January 2017, I think it was uh, New, Year's, New Year's resolution. I said, well, we'll put our name down for the London Marathon. Let's see. Uh, and let's see. Hopefully we both get in. Now, bear in mind that this was her suggestion. And she goes, if I get in, you're still going to have to run it with me anyway because I'm going to need you to train with me. I said, fine, got no problem with that. And I was hoping that she would get in. I got the email, I think it was in October 2017, I got the email saying, well done, you're in. I thought, oh my good God. <laughs> and I said to my wife, I said, did you receive an email? She goes, no. Logged onto the Virgin uh, website and it says, Ash, you got in. Unfortunately, your wife did not get in. Oh. And I said to her, what shall I do? Shall I defer it? She goes, no, you've got to run it now. I said, well, hang on. This was your idea. But yet now, Muggings here has to go and run <laughs> six miles, which meant for from October to April, which was pretty much a six-month, literally, Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, I pretty much ran around 40 miles a week. That's good going, Ash. So, yeah, started from no running to that. And, you know, in, I think it was 22nd of April of last, uh, of 2018, I did the London Marathon. Would you mind me asking how quick you did it in? Well, my aim, my training suggested I should have been to able to do it under the four-hour mark. Really? That's good. My, my aim was four hours. My trainer suggested I should have done it circa around 3.40 to 3.45. Wow. Unfortunately, the heat got the better of me on the London Marathon. It's the hottest London Marathon on record. The hottest London Marathon on record. And I did it in uh, 4.30. So I was about 45 minutes off pace, which yeah. is, I read, I beat myself up about it admittedly for the best part of two weeks after thinking I should have done better I could have yeah. done better. but the honest answer is that my body couldn't cool down quick enough mm. uh, for the first 10 miles I was running I think uh, under eight minute miles I was running at eight, eight, under eight minute miles and my body was literally overheating and it couldn't cool down I was drinking loads of water trying to have the cold showers it just wouldn't cool cooling down and as a result, I had to slow down, uh, and that's where it slowed me down massively. Otherwise, I would have easily done three and a half to three, three hours thirty to three hours forty. That's I really good going. I was tracking my time. I was really on point. So yeah. So even after the marathon, I've still kept running. I still run Tuesday and Thursday nights. I run Saturday and sometimes Sunday mornings, depending. You know, so I do eight miles on a Tuesday, and I. I treat that as like an efforts class where we do sprint sessions, yeah. uphill sessions. Thursday nights, 
about four, eight to 10 mile run. So I did that last night. And then Saturday mornings, I do the park run. Uh, and I had a bit of a run on, so we do around seven miles there. Uh, and then on Sunday, depending on if a group's running, or do on average between 12 and 15 miles. Mm. That's good going up. That. Still kept it up. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Um, I've put my wife in for, I've put my wife and myself in for the London Marathon this year uh, for 2019 again. You can I've get your own back this time, can't you? Yeah, so <laughs> if she gets in, I would still run it with her yes. because she'll want that. Uh, if she doesn't get in and I get in again, I won't run. Or alternatively, I'll do a charity space or something. But I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I've also put the name up for Kilimanjaro in March 2019. So a pal of mine done that and um, he suffered with altitude sickness. So try not to do that one too quick, Ash, because that was his problem. He was a marathon runner as well. And thought he could get it done really quick and that was his problem he, he suffered from altitude sickness while he was there by going so high so quickly yeah well i'm, I'm going up with a group so in that respect i think we'll be determined when having a read up on it yeah i think you just got to have a good level of fitness don't worry about time etc i'm not going there for a time or anything like that i'm going yeah. there just to beat it um so yeah i'm always looking for a bit of a challenge i suppose that also comes back down to me in property as well um now where where are we today i've got a i've got a business that consists of 13 property companies and all of them do something slightly different so i'm a franchisor of a letting agency called rent me now i've got i own well i've got I've still got the family portfolio, so I've still got the family portfolio. I've got my own property portfolio, so I think off memory now we're hitting circa around 1,100 tenants, slightly over. That's incredible, Ash. So um, what else? We've got a property payment platform called Tasker Payment Services. We've mm -hmm. got a portal called DSS Move. Um, We've got the property trading company. We're about to launch a new bit of software, um, which I can't talk about yet because it's not live. Uh, but that will be launching hopefully in October of 2018. So there's always something to do. Uh, I'm still training. I'm still running training, uh, property training, the mentorship schemes. And I enjoy the mentorship schemes probably the most, just purely because the, the satisfaction that you get from seeing people succeed. I've got two very young 18-year-old guys in my mentorship, uh, guys called Fazim and Michael. And they're 18 years old. And so far this year, they've traded 20 properties. They started in June 2018. That's brilliant. In August 2018. So we're in space of... 10 weeks, they've traded 20 properties. Absolutely brilliant. Well done, Arsh, and well done to them as well. So it's phenomenal watching the success, and that's what I thrive off. I, I thrive off seeing people literally taking property, uh, taking the knowledge and taking action with it, because learning about it is one thing. Actually implementing it for me is something completely different, and that's where I like to see people. And I, I keep saying to them, talking about it is one thing. You've got to go out and do it. And going back to my ethos and going back to my upbringing, you have to do it in order to see results. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. 
Um, yeah. do, do I get a chance to sit down? I still like, I still don't like sitting down. My wife, I've got a goal where I'm aiming to retire at the age of my 45th birthday, which is the 12th of 2025. I've set all my goals so that I retire on my birthday yeah. on the day I'm 45. Uh, I've structured all my loans and everything in my company so that I can do that. So I'm completely financially and debt free on the 12th of November. Yeah, that's you've got a lot of hard. repayment mortgages, haven't you? So that they're all paying down. So that's a that's a good technique. That's, that is, yeah, that's the technique that I employed back in 2008. I structured all my loans so that they're all on capital repayment, so that regardless of what the market does, I am in a position where I can actually say that if the market goes up, I'm just going to benefit from capital growth and equity. If the market declines, I'm still going to be in equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. A lot of people are still on interest only mortgages and they are literally unfortunately i say that they're playing uh a little bit dangerously no one can tell what's going to happen with the property market and 2008 being prime example of that yeah you know i got burnt yeah you know, as, as my book says boom bust and back again 2008 uh one of the property companies that i was involved with was a development company and that nearly went uh, well, we had to put that into administration in 2008 as a result, which nearly caused it, well, lost approximately £8 million worth of personal wealth as a result of that, and nearly caused me to go bust. Wow. The result had to fight my way back. So that's a completely different sort of story alone, and that's where we went into development, building blocks of apartments and new built homes, uh, and at any one point we were building a property. 200 homes so whether that be apartments or housing uh, yeah housing uh, housing sites and that's a completely different model to everything that i've been aware uh, that that i've been involved in because the property trading and all the other stuff is stuff that you get paid up front and you don't need to worry about in essence cash flow because you've been paid from day one yeah with investment or with property development it's a different ball game completely because a, you buy the site first, which means that you're spending money on the site. Then yeah. you're in the site, which means that you're spending money on the site. You only get paid at the very last stage. So your profit is released to you at the last stage because when you sell the properties, the first people that want their money back is the bank that want their money the builders and all the other trades people that you've paid or probably got on credit and the last person that gets paid is you and yeah. the last it generally is the last few units on a development which is the profit in the job yeah it is so, a way of thinking about the, the different style the units are sold it is so in that respect if someone i i get approached with people saying oh i've got a property invest i've got a property development site you want to get involved and i generally say to people unfortunately it's not for me i've seen that side and it's not a site that i like it's very cash intense it's very time intense and you can never really relax whilst you're property developing because until that actual site has sold and it's 100 sold you don't know what's going to happen yeah, you know, we were building on twenty percent margins, 
So let's start. Uh, let's say that a site a gross development value was a million pounds. Our profit in that site would have been approximately uh, two hundred thousand pounds. But we wouldn't see that literally until day the uh, the very end of the job. However, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when the market started to crash, developers or, or valuers were down valuing our stock by thirty percent, which means that we were actually losing. 10% for every property we sold. That's crazy, yeah, yeah. Wow. So in that respect, there's there's a lot. When people when people say that they're going into property development, I always say you've got to, you've got to look at it very carefully because you are going to need a lot of cash reserves, mm. a lot of patience. There's no guarantee that your stock is going to sell as great as it may be. And it's a case of whether you think you're going to build it and sell it within a year you've got a budget for two years on whether you can survive for two years with no cash flow unless other cash flow models mm. yeah i get you a totally different style from some of the other ways of property investing so there's lots of ways to think about it now my my main model is that i make sure that we're paid first in the sourcing and the trading stuff that we do we're always paid first yeah so, Ash, tragically, you lost your dad not too long ago, and I know he obviously helped you along the way and, and mentored you, but who else helped you along the way? Yeah, uh, so my father, God bless him, his best friend, my soulmate, uh, my mentor, my business partner. He's the first person that, I, other than my wife, he's the first person that I'd speak to in the morning. Mm-hmm one of the last people that I spoke to every day um, and so losing him into cancer in 2015 was a massive shock the way that we lost him was also quite tragic tragic because we got we lost him within the space of three weeks from the diagnosis to actually burying him so from the moment they told him that he had been diagnosed with cancer uh, and then they, they reckoned that he had you know easily 12 to 24 months what i didn't prepare for knowing that three weeks later i was going to be saying bye to him and burying him mm. that was a tough time yeah um other than that who else have i taken strength from yeah. really is my mother because you know on the rental side my whilst my dad was at the engineering company it was that was looking after the tenants and taking the calls and dealing with the properties during the nine to five and then my father would take over from five to eight or five to nine in the evening so i haven't really sourced any external help uh i have a business partner uh, in all the stuff that i do who's my brother who's been on exactly the same journey as me so you know very engaged he would be at the engineering company um, and then helping with the, the properties. So other than that, I haven't been, to be honest, if you're asking me, have we, I've been on it, have I got any mentors? Have I got any, um, have I been on any property training schemes? The, the answer is no. I've learned along the way. Yeah. Um, you know, I've learned along the way. If I think, if I've heard about something, I'll think, well, let's try it with one. Let's see how that gets on. And we'll, go from, we'll take a calculated risk on that. So, um, I like reading stuff. 
I get a little bit envious when I read stuff on Facebook saying lots of people doing lots of great things. And that only pushes me wanting to do more. My mm-hmm. wife to me, how much more can you do? You know, 500 deal, 483 deals last year. You're mentoring 177 people. Um, you're, you've got a portfolio worth X million pounds. You're, you've got a letting agency. You've got a multi-office letting agency. You know, you're doing this, you're doing that. You wrote a best-selling book. You're still speaking on the speaking circuit. How much time have you actually got? You know, I'm still writing for two very well-known publications, Your Property Network and the HMO Magazine, yep. as well as interviewed for certain podcasts and certain publications. She goes, how much time do you actually, how much more do you want, actually want to do? And the only answer to that is, I'm still hungry. I see lots of people do lots of great things on social media, and that spurs me on to think, you know what, I could do more. At the moment, my, my work-life balance is quite well. So I do nine till five, Monday to Friday. I try not to work weekends. Um, my wife admittedly gets a little bit annoyed when I take calls um, on weekends. I try, to, I try to limit that so that I get lots of quality time with our children. Um, and that's a bit of a challenge, admittedly, because... If it's up to me, I'll take every call and I'll try and help everyone. And she goes, at some point, you've got to switch off. And that's my biggest, probably downfall, is the ability to switch off because the cogs are always turning. You know, it's not uncommon for me to jump out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning if I've had an idea and I need to write it down or I need yeah. to somewhere. Uh, so she, she always says to me, if you've got an idea, write it down before you forget it. So there's lots going on. The cogs are always turning, and my biggest downfall is the ability to switch off. Am I, able, am I going to be able to retire at the age of 45? Financially, yes, as everything's already in place. Mentally, God knows. <laughs> That's a totally different thing, isn't it, I suppose? It is, indeed. <laughs> so because she'll say, you'll find something else to do. And she goes, maybe you should go into lecturing or go into college or, or you know, inspire the youth uh, of entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurism, and that's something that might help. Uh, that I might do. But I said to my wife, I take every day as it comes. I put my best foot forward. I try and help. I give a good advice as and where I can, and I try and help everyone. So those two young lads you were talking about earlier that you helped, is there anybody else that you've helped that's actually changed their life? Oh, there's so many people that I've helped that I've gone from literally starting with nothing and gone on to financial freedom, gone on to great success. Yeah. Tell us about one or two of those, Ash. Where do we begin? So I've got, I've got this father and son team, guys called uh, Martin and Elliot Webb. Uh, they came to me when they were in full-time, uh, well, Martin was full-time employment in a job that he hated. Elliot was in sixth form. And he did, Elliot were decided that he wasn't going to go on to further education. And I started mentoring them. And they've gone from absolutely nothing. They wanted to initially explore the rent-to-rent option. I've got them a couple of rent-to-rent properties and they've decided that they didn't want to become full-time landlords or they didn't want to become landlords or property managers. We changed their strategy and then they decided they liked the thought of development. Even though I was very against development, I could see that they had something in them. And off the back of that, they've now gone on to, uh, we've got a pipeline of development deals at the moment and we've structured the finance extremely carefully so that they don't fall 
into the same pitfalls that I went through back in 2007 and 8. I've got, you know, a pipeline of best part of £3 million worth of deals. That's brilliant. Changed their life. Completely changed their life. And they've come at and Martin left his job. Uh, and it is now full time. And it, it is a true father and son story. And I'll tell you what you could do if you wanted to. You could see their journey on the Elite Property Tribe actual website. So go mm-hmm. to www.elitepropertytribe.co.uk. And it's got you know, it's got a snapshot of about six or seven different people who have uh, done great things and all within uh, a few minutes. Uh, a few minute video so that's something that someone could watch if they're interested yeah yeah that's fantastic Ash thanks for telling us all about your story the incredible journey you've been on and how successful you've been is there any particular way you want people to contact you if they'd like to get in touch with you and look at your services yeah always happy for anyone to give me a call or have a chat the best way of finding out where to contact me is by going to my website which is www.arshilahi.com uh, and on my website i actually give my personal mobile number out because i'm happy to talk to anyone and everyone about how i can help or how i can push you along on your journey so like the thought of that go to my website arshilahi.com and I'll be happy to have a chat. Ash, thanks very much for coming on the show. No problem. Thank you very much for your time, Andy. And more importantly, thank you very much for inviting me. If you like this kind of information that we're giving you, please tell your friends, share, comment on the show, and give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, and help us to grow the show. Thanks very much.